Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. You have studied history, you know the name Marco Polo. His Italian mother named him after the gospel writer Mark in the hopes that he too would tell the gospel truth. But the 13th century Europeans found it impossible to believe some of Mark's tales of faraway lands. See, he claimed a lot of things. He claimed that when he was only 17, he took this epic journey lasting a quarter of a century, taking him across the steppes of Russia, the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, the wastelands of Persia, and over the top of the world through the Himalayas. He was the first European to enter China. Through an amazing set of circumstances, he became the favorite of the most powerful ruler on the planet Earth at that time, the Kublai Khan. Mark saw cities that made European capitals look like roadside villages. The Khan's palace was huge. It dwarfed the large castles and cathedrals in Europe. It was so massive that its banquet room alone could seat 6,000 people at one time, each eating on a plate of pure gold. Mark saw the world's first paper money and marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. Now, it would be the 18th century before Europe would manufacture as much steel as China was producing in the year 1267. And Marco, he became the first Italian. Let me tell you, this one's near and dear to my heart as an Italian. He became the first Italian, most historians believe, to taste the Chinese invention called pasta. As an officer of the Khan's court, he traveled to places no European would see for another 500 years. And after serving Kublai Khan for 17 years, Mark began his home journey to Venice, loaded down with gold, loaded down with silk and spices. And when he arrived at home, people dismissed his stories of this mythical place called China. His family priest even rebuked him. His family priest rebuked him for telling lies. And at his deathbed, his family and his friends and his priest, they begged him to recant his tales of China. But setting his jaw and gasping for breath, Mark spoke his final words and he said this, I have not even told you half of what I saw. Even though the 13th century Europeans rejected his stories as the tales of a liar or a lunatic, history has proven the truthfulness behind the book he wrote about his adventures in the travels of Marco Polo. About 1,200 years before Marco Polo wrote about China, another man named the Apostle John went on an amazing journey to heaven itself. Many have shaken their heads of disbelief at the Apostle John's vision and his witness to the glory of heaven. 
But the biblical writers who describe heaven for us would declare to us, I have not even told you half, half of what we have seen because heaven is more joyful, more glorious, and more beautiful than you can ever imagine. John saw more than heaven, though, didn't he? John saw the revelation of Jesus Christ. John saw the work of God during the tribulation, the establishment of the kingdom of God and the final judgment of all men. John saw more than he could even describe in his written words. One of the greatest tragedies about the book of Revelation is that it is exactly today in the church of Jesus Christ precisely what God never wanted. It is now a closed book. A sealed book that most Christians just feel they cannot understand. But think with me this morning how this great book starts out. See, verse 1 begins by telling us this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. This passage gives us the reason Jesus reveals himself. It's not just a bunch of dry information. I'm so sad for you if you think it is. It's a revelation of Jesus. It is of him and from him. And then down in verse 3, we're going to read this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. What I'm telling you this morning is that God wants you to understand the book of Revelation. He wants you to learn this message and be edified in our faith by it. There is a blessing that comes to those who understand and take to heart the message that is revealed in this book. So the very first lesson that we need to understand before we even begin our study in the book of Revelation is that God wants us to understand the written word in the book of Revelation. There's a promise of blessing for those who read and keep the things written in this book. Now, the book of Revelation is a personal letter from Jesus to his church. I want to ask you, Christian, I want to ask you, believer in Christ, what could be more treasured in your life than a letter from Jesus himself? You see, God inspired the apostle John to bring this message to us. This is shown to us from the historical documents from the first century and the second century, all which testify that this was written by John. But my main concern is that we have the proof from the word of God itself that this is from John. You see, three times in the first chapter, the author identifies himself as John. Verse 1, it says, his servant John. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Written down by John, a servant of Christ. And Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 both again teach us that John is the man that God used to write this book. The wording of the book of Revelation tells us a lot about John's understanding. That this man had a deep understanding and a command of the Old Testament. 
There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. It wasn't me who counted that. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And out of those 404 verses, 278 of those verses have some allusion, some reference to an Old Testament scripture. This was a man that had a clear understanding of the Old Testament. The date is around 95 or 96 AD. John was banished to the island of Patmos for his testimony of Jesus Christ. Domitian, this man, he is the emperor of Rome. He became the emperor in the year 81 AD. Now this was the guy who went on and completed the Roman conquest of Britain. And after 89 AD, his reign became a dictatorship, leading to a reign of absolute terror. Other Roman emperors had used banishment as a way to deal with their political opponents, but Domitian was the first to use it against Christians. And we know from the records that he specifically used the island of Patmos as a place to send Christians. Domitian demanded that the people worship him. The Christians refused, and this great wave of persecution against the church was launched. Christian businesses were boycotted. Many Christians were thrown into prison, exiled. They were even put to death. The book of Revelation was God's answer to that reign of terror in the first century because Christians could see that despite everything that they were facing, God was still on his throne. John was persecuted for the faith. And verse 10 of chapter 2 makes it clear that John felt the Christians should expect more persecution to come their way. John was banished to Patmos near the end of the reign of Domitian, putting the book written around 95 or 96 A.D. Now the Lord Jesus revealed himself to John on Patmos telling us a lesson for our own lives that we are never in a place where Christ's love cannot find us. Patmos was not much of a place. Now people take, I think it's funny because you see pictures of these big cruise ships docked there. You see all these cruise ships. People are, are taking vacations to see where John was. This island, this remote island in the middle of the Aegean Sea. But this place is nothing. It is nothing. It's a dot on the face of the planet. It was a Roman penal colony. Less than four square miles. It's nowhere. And here is Jesus here is Jesus visiting John, revealing himself to John, teaching us, friends, that you can never be in such a forsaken place where his love cannot reach you. That's the heart of the message. You see, you may find yourself alone or in a place of confusion or despair. Maybe you feel alone in life or rejected, but John is reporting the revelation of Jesus came to me when I was off in the middle of nowhere on an island. And the love of Christ, Christians, is always with us, isn't it? God himself is always with us. You're never alone. Take that application for your life. Now, the purpose of the book of Revelation is given right in verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. It goes back to this very idea that these Christians living in the first century were considered as enemies of the state. But the revelation demonstrated in this book showed them that even though they were hated for their faith in Christ, 
Even though Christ himself was the focus of so much hate, one day Christ will return to reign on earth. And believers in Christ, despised and few in number, they will share in his triumph in Christ. Living in that day, it would be hard for these first century Christians. It would be very hard for these first century Christians to imagine that there could be anything more powerful than Caesar or the Roman Empire. But the message from God was that another empire would arise. There would be another empire that would be even stronger than Rome one day by the victorious Christ. Christ will then establish his own kingdom, which will last for a thousand years on old earth, which will then only be an introduction to the day when the new heaven and new earth come. Revelation completes what God has intended for man all the way back from Genesis. You see, back in Genesis, paradise is closed to man. But in Revelation, paradise is open to man. Back in Genesis, man is barred from the tree of life. But in Revelation, the tree of life is available to man. In Genesis, sin entered, bringing sorrow and pain to mankind. And in Revelation, sin is banished with sorrow and pain. In Genesis, we see the very first murderer, the first drunk, the first rebel appeared. And in Revelation, the last murderer, drunk, and rebel are banished. In Genesis, the first tears are shed. In Revelation, the last tear is wiped away. In Genesis, the curse enters and brings death. And in Genesis, the curse is removed and death is banished once for all. In Genesis, Satan enters the world stage, but in Revelation, Satan is banished to the lake of fire. To turn to the pages of Revelation like we are this morning is to see the purposes of God fulfilled. But there's a method to the madness. There's a method to how we study. You see, we believe in the historical grammatical method of interpretation. Now, I know this can seem a little dry, and I know that this can seem a little boring, but it's very crucial to your faith and how we all study the Word of God. You see, when you study any document, I don't care what it is, any document, not just the Bible, certain basic rules apply. And when you apply those rules of language, you preach a proper understanding of the text. You get to that proper understanding. The grammatical interpretation demands the study of words that are used. You have to look at the words that are used and the sentence structure. You simply cannot force your own understanding of the grammar into the text. And I would dare say that most Christians today are guilty of this. I did this as a new Christian. Most of us did. And this is the very reason there's so much confusion in the church today about the Word of God. And ultimately, when we look at Revelation, it does not matter what I think it means. It matters what God himself intended. You study the words that were used in the culture in which the book was written. Back in 1914, a British soldier from World War I, Private Thomas Hughes, he wrote a letter to his wife and he sealed it in a ginger ale bottle. And then he just tossed it, just kind of tossed it as a wishful thinking into the English Channel. And he died two days later fighting in France. But fast forward to the year 1999, when a fisherman found the bottle in the River Thames, it was too late to deliver it to his wife because she died back in the year 1979. 
But it was not too late, not too late for his 86-year-old daughter, who was only one year old when her father died. The message from her father was delivered to her at her home in New Zealand. And the letter, hear me, the letter was understood because it was written in a specific place in time from Thomas Hughes to his family. The letter could be understood because the people receiving it loved the author enough to take the time and read it. And if you know the author and you know the context of the letter and you know the history and the words used and the language used, we can understand God's intended meaning. You see, when we look at the Word of God, we understand that God Himself is the author, written to His family, written to His people, written down long ago, but preserved for us. You see, people get into trouble with the book of Revelation because they forget the normal rules of language. That when we look at the words and numbers, we interpret them literally, unless the context then demands otherwise. Unless the context itself tells us that what we are reading is symbolic or figure of speech. And even then, we use the context to explain the symbols used. And this simple understanding of a literal approach to the scripture drives our understanding of the word of God. You have probably heard many different ideas in your life as a Christian of what this book means. There are many different interpretations. The preterist interpretation. Preterist basically means past. This teaches that the book of Revelation is true, but claims that everything up until chapter 20 had already been fulfilled by the time that John wrote this at the end of the first century. In other words, John was writing history and not prophecy. The historical approach takes a different angle. It takes the events of Revelation to be real, but it takes chapters 4 through 19 as the prophetic unfolding of church history from the time of the apostles up until the second coming, the second advent. This was the view of many of the reformers held by both Luther and Calvin. But when we look at the words of Scripture, following the rules of grammar, following the rules of language, it takes us to the futurist interpretation. And I start, I start as a Christian with the basic idea that God wants us to understand revelation. He wants you and I to understand his letter to us. Because isn't that what he said to us just a minute ago in the very first verse of the letter when he said, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And then with that simple idea that God wants me to understand, I believe that God put the key to the understanding, the, the whole letter right in the very first chapter. This is the key verse coming up. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you need to focus on verse 19 of chapter 1. Christ speaking to John. Verse 19 records, write the things which you have seen. This is the outline of the book of Revelation. Here it comes. This would be a reference to the vision of Christ in chapter 1. And the things which are, he says, this would be a reference to Christ's messages to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then he says, and the things which will take place after this. Well, what would that be? This is a reference to the things that will take place 
after the rapture, after the church is taken to be with the Lord. This would cover chapter 4 all the way until the end of the book. There's your outline. I believe with all of my heart that Christ put this key right here, these critical statements right here to help his saints, you and I, rightly divide his word. This is the only system of interpretation where scripture is allowed to mean exactly, exactly what it states. One last item we need to address, a little bit more theology for you guys before we move into the text, is the different views about the millennial reign of Christ. You may have heard people say out there that they are all millennial, meaning they believe there will be no literal reign of Christ on earth. The A is basically a negative before millennial, meaning just no millennium. Now, this was the view of Augustine. He rejected the teaching of the imminent return of Christ, and he refused to believe in a literal reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years. See, his belief was that the millennium is the present age between the first and second coming of Christ. Augustine taught that because Israel had rejected Christ, they were now under the curse of God, and therefore they would never, ever be restored. The amillennial view has changed a little bit over the years, but it still remains basically the teaching today of the Roman Catholic Church. This was the view that was embraced by the Reformers, and this is why it passed on into most of the Protestant denominations even to our day. This view, hear me, does not believe in the rapture of the church. The second view of the millennial reign of Christ is the post-millennial view. This teaches that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it teaches that the world will eventually become Christianized and that the return of Christ will come at this end of this long period of righteousness and peace. And you see this belief being propagated today because more and more homeschooling groups and social action groups are turning to this view. And this is why some of these groups are becoming so vocal, because they view it as their responsibility to help to usher in the millennium by making the world all Christian. And standing in total contrast to these other views is the premillennial teaching. All millennial denies the literal millennium Postmillennial believes the millennium comes about by the preaching of the gospel. But the clear teaching of the early church in the first and second and third century, right up until the time of Augustine, was the premillennial view. And we can prove that from the historical documents. This is the biblical view that holds to a literal interpretation of Revelation 19, that Christ will return to earth and overthrow the armies of Satan. This is the literal view that Christ will return to establish a 1,000-year reign on the earth when Christ and his saints will rule on earth from the city of Jerusalem. This view understands from Scripture, as the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 9-11, through 11, that God most certainly is not done with the nation of Israel. And I get angry when I hear churches in the valley preaching that God is done with Israel. That angers me. God has a plan for them. They will be reconciled to God, and he will become the leading nation on earth. The premillennial view understands that the Old Testament promises to Israel will absolutely be fulfilled. 
And this is the view we take here. As long as I am here, this is the view we take here. If you want to teach a different view, you're going to have to fire me. And when we went through the book of Daniel, we made it very clear from Daniel 9 and from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that before the tribulation, Christ will come for his church, the bride of Christ. While the tribulation is taking place on earth, the bride of Christ, you and me, friends, we're going to be with our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Now, with the time we have left, what do you guys think? Let's head to some scripture this morning. Let's head into the text. Take a look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. The first three words in Greek translate into the first five words in English. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Do me a favor. Please do not call it revelations. There's no S. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hear me on that. The word for revelation literally means the removing of a veil. It gives the idea of uncovering or unveiling. The clear understanding is that a certain truth or a person was hidden up until the point of this revelation. You see, what I'm telling you is that this book is meant to unveil Christ. And it is men who make it confusing. It is men who are causing all the confusion in the church today with their theories about revelation that are not coming from the word of God itself. And the result of the confusion is that many Christians today are not content reading this book. Many Christians are left thinking that they can't understand or they don't even want to put into the effort or they don't even care about it. But God meant it to be clear. God meant it to be simple. And it was not written to confuse us or frighten us. God meant it to be a revelation. And when we think of revelation unveiling Christ, we have to think in two different ways. First, it will unveil Christ to those who are the redeemed in Christ because we'll be able to read and understand more about our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. But secondly, we skip down to verse 7 for just a second. Notice verse 7, it records this. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Not only does this book unveil Christ to the redeemed, but it looks forward to the day when every eye shall see Jesus Christ. So don't let the end times described in this book distract you from the very heart of the book, the author, the author himself of these events. This book is about the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, it's like the old poster that used to be in the Christian bookstores of a troubled teenager that was praying the words, Lord, Lord, I'm worried about tomorrow. And Jesus responding by saying, don't worry, I've already been there. That's the truth. You see, because there's comfort that comes from knowing the book of Revelation. Because to understand the book of Revelation is to know the Savior. We can rest in the God who has already written the next chapter. I'm reminded of the words of Deuteronomy 33:27, which gives us the assurance, the eternal God is your judge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. 
So head back to verse 1, and let's take a look at the next few words speaking about Christ. Notice what it reads, which God gave him. Now, these are just amazing words. These are absolutely amazing words in Scripture. The source of this book is God. Remember, Jesus Christ is the God-man. What does that mean? It means he's both fully God, not partially God, fully God and fully man. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are equal, equal, but different roles. We learn in the Gospels that God the Son acts in submission to the Father. And so it is completely fitting with the divine purpose of God that God would give to him this revelation. Understand that to give here means to entrust. This is the revelation that God entrusted to Christ. Notice again the rest of the verse to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. The triune God entrusted the Christ with the task of showing his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, the word must is used throughout this book, meaning something that is necessary. This is something that is necessary, something that is binding God is alerting his servants ahead of time to the events that will come about in his plan and his purpose for the earth. Now, this word shortly, let's talk about this in the text. A lot of Christians over the years, they've looked at this word and thought to themselves, well, this book, it must not be true because Christ hasn't returned. Come on, it's been 2,000 years. What's happening? Because in their mind, they're thinking, hey, 2,000 years have gone by, so there's no way this could be true. But just understand that the idea here with this is not so much how soon the event will happen, but rather the absolute certainty that these things will happen. And when they do, when they happen, it will be with the wording here, the idea is that they will be fulfilled at a very rapid fire pace. Now, this should bring us great comfort, knowing that God himself is testifying. It is certain that the events are going to come to pass. And the text reads that Christ sent and signified it. Another way of saying this would be to say that he was making it known. He was declaring it to be true. So Christ made it known by his angel to his servant, John. And the way that Christ communicated this revelation to John is through his angel. Now, God does that, doesn't he? He did it in Daniel and he did it in Zechariah, where both received visions through an angel. John was the chosen servant of Christ to convey this message to men. And therefore, you can see the line of communication here. God entrusted this to Christ. Christ communicated this through his angel to John. And from John, it was made known to the rest of the servants of God. Then notice verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Who bore witness? Now, this goes back to John. John bore testimony to the word of God. John is not referring to the gospel of John at this point. John is referring to the words contained in this book, that these words that we're about to read are the very words of God. Forty-four times... 44 times in this book, John wrote these words, I saw. 44 times John said, I saw. He is describing what he saw and that this is the testimony of Christ, that the things in this book must come to pass. Verse 3, our final verse for today. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. 
The last book of the Bible is pretty unique because of the blessing it contains for those who read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. There are other statements of blessing that we will see in this book. Blessing for the saints of the tribulation. Blessing for the saints in the millennium. And blessings in the eternal state. But what makes this statement right here in verse 3 so unique is that it contains a statement of blessing for the saints in this dispensation. For believers in Christ living right now, you and I. Because remember the Christians at the time were being persecuted for their faith and they needed encouragement. And reading this book, understanding this book is meant to give believers in Christ both strength and hope. Revelation starts out with this promise of blessing and it ends with this very promise of blessing. Revelation 22 verse 7 records, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of of the prophecy of this book. This is the one book in the New Testament which promises a blessing for those who read and keep this book. And yet at the same time, as I said before, this is the very book in the New Testament that most often goes unread. Now the reason we see in verse 3 of chapter 1 this promise of blessing for he who reads in the singular, and those who hear plural, it points to the reality of the first century churches where they had the practice of having a person in charge of reading the scripture as the others in the church, as the others in the assembly would listen. And this is another one of those areas that started out in the synagogues and then it rolled into the churches. But notice with me that it's not just enough to hear the word. This blessing is for those who hear and keep those things which are written in this prophecy. Why is that true? Have you ever thought of that as you've read this yourself? Why is this true? Why is it only a blessing for those who keep it? Well, because to hear the words of Revelation and to keep the words of Revelation means that you're going to take the information that you have learned and you're actually going to do something with it. You're going to apply it. See, you're going to let the Spirit of God work through God's Word, Revelation, and it can change your life. Therefore, you, Christian, will be blessed. This is living in faith. Trusting the Lord will carry out all that has been written in this book. And notice the last part of verse 3. It says, for the time is near. In other words, the time of which this book speaks is at hand. The reference here, the wording, refers not just to time, but more to a season of time, to a season. And so really this is telling us that the season of the end times has come upon us. It didn't mean it had to happen 1,900 years ago, right after the Lord used John to write this book. It means that all the prophecies about the death of Christ on the cross, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ have been fulfilled. And the very next thing on the prophetic clock is the rapture of the church. Nothing else needs to be fulfilled before this happens. The season has arrived where the events of which this book speaks are imminent, meaning they could take place without any further warning from God. Before his death, Billy Graham told about a conversation that he had with John Kennedy shortly after John Kennedy was elected president. And Billy said, on the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect stopped the car and he said he turned to me and he asked the question, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Well, Billy responded to the president-elect. He said, I most certainly do. And then referring to his own church, Kennedy said, well, they don't, they don't preach it. 
They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think. So Billy explained from the Bible what the Bible says about Christ coming the first time, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then promising that he himself would come back again. And only then, Billy told the president, are we going to have permanent world peace. Well, Kennedy responded that he was very interested by this thought, and he told Billy, we're going to have to talk about that someday. And then they drove on. Several years later, the two met again at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast, and Billy described the time. He said, I had the flu, and after I gave my short talk and he gave his, we walked out of the hotel together to his car. And at the curb, Billy says, he turned to me and he said, Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to see you for a minute. Well, Mr. President, I, I have a fever, Billy told him. Not only am I weak, but I, I don't want to give you this thing. Couldn't we wait and talk some other time? Well, of course, the president said, but the two, the two would never meet again because later that year, Kennedy was shot dead. And Graham later commented, and here's what he said, his hesitation at the car door and his request still haunt me. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was a moment that was gone forever. I'm not foolish enough to think that the work of God depends on me, because I don't believe that for a second. But I am one who does not want to live with any regrets. I don't. And this is why I study the Word of God. This is why when some of you guys call, you can't get a hold of me, that's what I'm doing. I'm studying the Word of God. This is why I do that. This is why I want you to study God's Word. This is why I want you to study it. Because it's not just you guys that have questions, but the people out there. The people out there have questions about the Word of God. And if they know you're a Christian, expect them to ask you. Expect them to ask you. So I want to encourage you this morning to learn the Word of God for yourself. Learn the Word of God then for others. See, the return of Christ for His church, it could happen at any time, and I hope you believe that. And when He does come back, He is going to hold each of us accountable for how we spend our time, how we live now. I want to be found faithful. I want to be found living for the Savior. I want to redeem the time today, using it for tomorrow in glory. You know, prophecy, prophecy is given to believers, not just so we can sit here and scratch our nuggets and learn about the future and debate it, but so that we can start preparing, learning to live as a citizen of the coming kingdom of God. This is the training ground. This is the training ground. Are you doing much training or are you just sitting back? This is the training ground here and now. See, God, God wants us to gain a perspective that is rooted in him in heaven and found through his word. Unless you take on this perspective, life is going to stress you out. Life is going to stress you out to no end. And it's going to stomp you down every time pressure comes. Every one of us goes through struggles. Every one of us goes through tough times. But as a called out child of God, no matter what you're going through, the time you go through struggles is short compared to what your life is supposed to be about. See, what I'm telling you this morning is this. Your life is not about your money problems. Everybody's got money problems almost. Your life is not about your marriage problems. Your life is not about your work. 
It's not about any other battles that you have. God does care about those things. He certainly does. But the message of Revelation is keep it all in perspective. Don't let your problems define you. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the Word of God. Keep your eyes on your faith. And realize that life in Christ is deeper than any puddle in life that you may have to cross. This is the blessing that comes from taking heed to the message of Revelation. His grace, His peace in us, making the most of every day, standing ready for Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.